0: So good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everyone, whether you're online and watching us or here in person. We're glad you're here. And this is a time where we can connect with each other a little bit. And I would refer you to princeandlion.org slash hub. Uh, you can do that on your phone, whether you're here or watching online. Uh, if you're here, actually, it's real simple. There's a QR code on the pub in front of you. And you just take a picture of that with your camera and Click on the link, it'll take you there. You're also, if you're here, you're handed the Connect card. You can do the same thing here. There's a slight advantage, though, if you go to PrinceAliance.org/hub, because this card allows you to tell us everything you need and to send in a prayer request, but it doesn't update you on what's happening in the church, and the hub does. So you'll be able to see what's happening this week and in coming weeks as well. So I would encourage you to do that, sit down a prayer request. let us know that you are visiting for the first time, where you're watching from, if you're online. Uh, And you know, when we ask for prayer requests, we really mean it, because we pray through those, and I know some of you have even received callbacks from us, because we wonder how it's going. But if you're celebrating something, if God did something amazing in your life, it doesn't always have to be a request, let us know. Tell us what you're praising God for on that as well, and we'd like to join you. I'll ask the ushers to come forward for those here so to pass the offering plates for them. Of course, you can give online at the Hub and I wanna thank you again for all that you give. We sent 13,000 for Haiti relief, 35,000 for Afghan relief and still had money because of your giving to make sure our kids are operating every 11 o'clock on a Sunday, that our youth is going strong, that we're doing all kinds of things in community like we always did. We just keep going forward because you support us with your prayers, your volunteering, but also for your giving. So thank you for that. We're in a series that Pastor Davi started last week. Uh, It's just a two-week series. He started it. I'm going to end it called Trustworthy and True, where we look at the reliability of the Bible. And Davi walked you through that last week. He gave several reasons of why we believe this truly is the word of God and it's true and all that it says. I just wrote a few of them down this morning to remind you that he told us the books of the Bible are eyewitness accounts that are consistent and congruent with each other. He reminded us that even as far as secular historical analysis goes, these are well-attested documents historically. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, from the Bible, and said it was authoritative and came from God. Prophecies that were given hundreds of years ahead of time were fulfilled later on correctly. Lives, millions over the hundreds of years have been changed because they read this. That's just a few of his reasons. And if you missed the message last week, you can go on our website and catch up on that message as well. So now today... I want to co- sort of put the other bookend on, if it's trustworthy and true, then we should read it and understand it and apply it as best as we can every day of our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I want to talk about how do we interpret it correctly and rules of interpretation, which is technically in a the theological word called world called hermeneutics. So I'm going to be talking about hermeneutics for the next few minutes with you. Before I do that, I want to remind you that we have another series starting next week called Sex, Sexuality, and Gender Identity, where we'll be looking at a question where many of us have and wonder what the Bible says about it in today's world. And I hope you can see the dovetail. It's going to be a four-week series, but we're talking now about the reliability of the Bible that it's true how to interpret it correctly, and then we're going to look at this question, uh, look at this issue that many of us have questions about in today's world, and say, let's do this rightly. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's make sure we interpret it correctly so then we can decide how to apply it together as a church. So parents especially, sex, sexuality, and gender identity, next four weeks, just let your family know, your kids know as well. Uh, But now let's talk about hermeneutics, okay? Okay. And before I actually get into the principles of interpretation, let me quickly define four terms for you that you may hear often when we talk about the Bible, its reliability, and how to interpret it. First term is revelation. Second term is inspiration. Third term is illumination. And the fourth term is interpretation. So, revelation. When we talk about the Bible, we say it is a revelation, simply meaning that we don't come up with it ourselves. It's not like someone writing down their, writing their own book and deciding what to say. It has to be revealed to us from God. It's a revelation. Inspiration refers to the process by which God did reveal that through human people, that He actually through his spirit inspired the original authors so that they weren't just writing what they thought, they actually were writing as God told them, as God directed them. Then illumination, it talks about the work of God's spirit in our lives, not in the original writer's life, but in our lives, whenever we go to the word of God, we need illumination. We need a spirit to open our eyes to have the spiritual eyes that we need to read this incredible text. And interpretation is where I'll spend most of my time this morning because we also need to know the rules to understand it correctly in order to apply it. It always leads to application. Now, Pastor Davi covered the first two of those definitions in his. He showed us why this is a revelation and that it was through the inspiration of God himself that we know it's trustworthy and true. I want to talk about illumination his work in our lives as we read it, and interpretation how to do that today. So I've got nine principles for you, okay? Nine principles, which means I want to dive in right away, of interpretation, okay? The first is actually about the third word I identified, illumination. Every time you go to the Bible, ask God to illuminate you to understand whenever you read the Bible. That's what illumination is. He gives us the word of God, it's trustworthy and true, but he also says, I have the Holy Spirit. Just ask the Holy Spirit to help you to understand. Very simple, very first principle. And in agreement with that principle, in applying that principle, let's just go to the word right now. Let's let's go to the Lord right now in prayer as I lead us and ask for his illumination for the rest of this message, okay? Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit as we look at your word and talk about your word. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us, to help us to both understand and be ready to say yes to whatever comes out of the word and apply it to our lives. So that includes this morning as we talk about the word. All together, we need your illumination in our minds and our hearts to have those spiritual eyes, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. That's principle number one. Principle number two is read the text for its plain and obvious meaning. Okay, that sounds very simple. And some texts won't have a plain and obvious meaning, but most of them do. So don't try to look for something deeper. Just accept the plain and obvious meaning that hits you as you read the text, okay? There's a church father that lived a couple centuries after Jesus. His name was Origen. And Origen believed that every text of Scripture had a literal meaning and an allegorical meaning. So he believed you take the plain and obvious note, but you also have to look for something deeper, right? So for example, the good Samaritan, why was the good Samaritan told? Well, Jesus was asked the question, who is your neighbor? And he said, well, be like this guy, the good Samaritan. He didn't even know the guy who was hurt, but he helped him. That's what being a good neighbor is. And the neighbor means anybody who has a need, right? So simple answer, that's the plain and obvious meaning. But Origen said, but you have to go deeper than that. So he said that the Good Samaritan actually represents Jesus Christ, who has the answer to all people. And the person that was beaten and left to die on the roadside represents all of us sinners who need Jesus' help. And the wounds on the man who was left to die represent the vices in his life that kept him from Jesus. And the priest who walked by him before the Good Samaritan came represented the law, which could not help this man. And the Levite who next walked by without helping him, representing even the prophets of the Old Testament who could not help this guy. And then the Good Samaritan represents Jesus who could. And when Jesus as the Good Samaritan picks the body up and puts him on the donkey, the donkey represents the body of Christ which bears all our sins and heals all our diseases. And then he's taken to the inn and the inn represents the church because we all should be living like this. And when he paid money to the innkeeper, the Good Samaritan, the money represents the Father and the Spirit, the other two people of the Holy Trinity. And the... Um, innkeeper, who received the money, represented an angel who oversees all this. Now, it's not like he's way off in left field, maybe. There's a couple interesting points he makes there, but that's not normally how you would go to read this parable, because we could probably come up with a lot of different things that these people could symbolize in our own mind. So you first of all say, what's the plain and obvious meaning? And the plain and obvious meaning is Jesus was answering a question, who is your neighbor, and it should be like the Good Samaritan, okay? So that's principle number two. Principle number three, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. What do you mean by that, pastor? Well, if you're reading a passage of Scripture and it's hard to understand, then instead of without looking anywhere else in the Bible, trying to discern what that means on your own, Go to other passages of Scripture that may talk about the same topic. And you may hit a clearer one that will help you interpret this rather murky one, right? And that's the principle that goes along with this. Not only is Scripture the best interpreter of Scripture, but it's the clear passages that should help you interpret the unclear ones, not vice versa. So, for example... There are many churches, well, not many, but there are some churches and denominations that believe in what they call soul sleep. I don't know if you've heard that before, but some people believe that um, when you die, you do not go to heaven and hell directly. I mean, you just, you, you just sleep, like presumably in the ground, like your grave is there and you just go into this unconscious state and you only wake up when Jesus comes back in his final second coming, Okay. And they use passages of scripture to represent that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 says this. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Ah, so at the last time, when Jesus comes back, Jesus will bring those, and it says, who have fallen asleep. So people must fall asleep. That's pretty clear. uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So the last trumpet is when Jesus returns. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed at that time. Okay? Well, that sounds like maybe they're right. But then you find a whole bunch of verses that seem to say the opposite. So you start maybe with the Gospels and the thief on the cross who turns to Jesus and says... Jesus, remember me when you come into, my, into your kingdom, and Jesus returns to the man and says, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say today you'll just sleep for a while, but it'll be pleasant, and someday you're going to be with me in paradise, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says this, we are confident, I say, we are confident, he says, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, he doesn't prefer to be away from the body if it means sleeping. He prefers to be away from the body because it means present with the Lord. He says something almost identical to that in Philippians when he's in jail looking toward possible execution, and he writes to the Philippian church and says, I would love to stay with you, but if I die, I get to go be with Jesus. And he says, I'm struggling between the two. I'm torn between the two, he says in verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Well, he only desires to depart because what's better by far is he goes to be with Jesus, not he takes a nap, right? So even Jesus told a parable one time of a rich man and a poor man, and he called the poor man Lazarus, okay? And the rich man knew Lazarus but never helped him. His whole life never helped him. And when they die, the rich man goes to hell and then Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven right away. They even see each other, okay? It's not because they're sleeping, it's because they're there in their places. And you find many more verses that give the indication that we don't sleep. So what are we going to do with that? Well, first of all, just the sheer volume of verses that says we don't sleep should say that's probably the right way. So then... Step two would be to go to the original verses that the soul sleep people use and say, is there any way to understand these verses? Like First Thessalonians 4, when it says, in the final day, Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Well, what does it mean, fallen asleep? And you find out that in many contexts, that's just a euphemism to mean those who have died. So, Jesus is going to bring with him those who have died. It doesn't say he's going to bring with him from the grave, but bring with him when he returns from heaven those who have gone on before us, who have fallen asleep or died. So, there's ways to interpret this, but we let Scripture do the interpretation for us, okay? Scripture is always the best interpreter of other Scripture. Principle number four. Scripture must be interpreted in context. That makes sense, right? Scripture must be interpreted in context, but it's easy to just pick a verse and say, hey, this is what I think it believes and maybe use it out of context. Here's a great example. Philippians 4.13, we use it all the time. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Referring to Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Okay, so does that mean that I'm going to ace my exam tomorrow? Absolutely, because I can do this through Christ, even if I didn't study as much as I should tonight. Does it mean when I start my business, I believe I want to earn a million dollars and I can do all things through Christ? Well, maybe. I'm not saying it doesn't. But if we go back to the verse in context, what does it actually say with the surrounding verses? And it should come up here. Yeah, here it is. Philippians 4, 11. Let's start with verse 11 and end with the verse. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned a secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what's exactly the context? The context is about contentment, not about attainment. It doesn't mean we can't attain that Jesus is going to help us, but that's not what the verse is really saying. The verse is saying, I have all the power in me and Jesus to be able to thrive even if I don't ace the test, even if I don't make a million dollars. I can be content in Jesus whatever the circumstances, okay? Always interpret scripture in context. Principle number five, still with me? There's a bunch of them here. (laughs) Identify the kind of literature you are interpreting. Identify the kind of literature you're interpreting. Now, what I mean by that is this. Scripture and interpreting it actually should follow just the normal rules of language and interpretation. So if you come on a parable... There's a certain way to look at a parable different than you look at it as a regular piece of teaching. If you come on a piece of history, you're reading about history, interpreted as history. If you come on an allegory, symbols, interpreted as symbols. And if you come on a teaching passage that they usually refer to as didactic teaching doctrine passages, then that's the doctrine for normative everyday life. But we never let the allegorical and the historical contradict our normative everyday life and what we're supposed to be doing that we find in the doctrine passages. That's in the doctrine passages. So when I say, when you come on a parable, interpret it like a parable, what do I mean? Well, I mean this. Normally, and it's not all the time, I will admit, but normally a parable is written just to get one point of Christ. That's why we don't interpret the Good Samaritan passage like Origen did. We just stick with the one point Jesus was trying to make. Um, It usually is just that one point. And so we have, I've referred to Lazarus and the rich man, right? So there's all kinds of things you might want to learn from that story, but the point of the story is there's justice in eternity and hell, that even though these things weren't just here, there is justice in the final end of things. If, um, if, when Jesus says, build your house on the rock and not on the sand, he doesn't mean that literally. He's trying to make a point, right? He's, he doesn't mean you can't ever build your house unless you find a big enough rock. To build it on, right? He's talking about foundations. Make sure yours is firm. Build it on the rock of him, right? The prodigal son. There's a parable that you can, I think he can draw a lot of lessons from. There's lessons about the prodigal. There's lessons about the older brother. There's lessons about the father. But the main point, Jesus says it in a mix of other parables. It's telling us how much God desires lost people. It's really kind of the flip side of the coin of Lazarus and rich man. That was about justice and hell. This is about justice and mercy in heaven. That God so wants everybody to turn from him. You can be as bad as a prodigal, but when you turn around, he's there. He's there for you. And when you find and when you read a passage of history, read it as history. There's so all kinds of lessons we can learn from history, but not normally are we supposed to go back and try to live it the same way they lived it. But we can learn from history. So I'm looking at the book of Acts, and as a leader of a church, I want to look at the book of Acts because it's a history of the first church. I want to learn all kinds of things from there. But I won't literally try to live like they did. Oh, but pastor, in the second chapter of the book of Acts, it talks about all these miracles that the church did, and we're not seeing them in our church, and maybe we're doing something wrong, and maybe we're doing something wrong. But in that second chapter of Acts, it also, the church lived as a communal site. It was a commune. Everybody sold everything they had, had everything in common. When everybody had a need, they had this general bucket that they would take from. I don't think that's prescriptive for all time. If you take other historical passages, like, did you know there's actually three people in Scripture that parted the waters by the power of God? I think we think of Moses right off the bat, right? Because you have the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the Egyptians are bearing down on them, and God uses Moses who slams down his staff. Boom! The Red Sea is parted. But shortly after that, when Joshua took over for Moses, he did it again at the Jordan River so they could go into the promised land. Later on in scripture, we have Elisha, who's given the power of Elijah when Elijah is taken to heaven, and to show that he has the power, God lets him split the river that's in front of him so he can walk across. Does that mean my normal everyday life is, unless I can do that, I'm not a spiritual person? No, but these things are given to us to show that God still acts in history, He still can show up and do the incredible. He still can show up and do the miracle. And he can still show up anytime I need him because he's in my personal history. But interpret history as history. Well, how do we find out what our normal Christian life is supposed to be and what we are supposed to do and not supposed to do? That's the doctrinal passages, the didactic passages. In the Old Testament, for Israel, it was the law. In the New Testament, for us, it's the epistles, right? Right? And there's all kinds of teaching in there. Romans 12 is a perfect example. Romans 12 starts out with saying, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the first step in our lives. That's what we should think about every day. I need to be transformed today in the renewing of my mind. And then it goes on to say, And God will gift you and here's the gifts but here's how to use your gift in serving other people and serving other people fully. And then it goes on to talk about all the different relationships and how you show love to each other. That's a didactic passage and I should be looking at that for my normative Christian life. Everybody follow that one? Gets tricky sometimes but it is an important principle. Number six. Number six. Try to discern the writer's intention when he wrote The text. And this isn't always possible. It's not the easiest thing to do. And it's very similar to interpreting a text in its context, right? Find out what the author is really talking about and seeing if you can find his intent. So, for example, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you sin, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Did he mean it literally? Literally. Are we supposed to do that? And if not, why not? And why do any of us have hands and eyes, right? I mean, if we're really trying to do this thing, right? So in your mind, even though he says this, your mind, even by logic, says there must be a bigger point. Let me try to discern the point. And if you look at that whole Sermon on the Mount, it's this incredible contrast of God and how holy and righteous he is And how impossible it is on our own merits to ever reach that. That we need something more. He's setting himself up for his death, his resurrection, and salvation by faith, right? So this is like hyperbole for shock value because we don't understand how horrible sin is to God. So he tries to make it graphic. Cut off your hand. Better to gouge out your eye, right? So try to discern the writer's intentions when he wrote the text. Number seven, look carefully at the language of the text. And by this, I mean more than context. I mean, look at the specific words. Make sure you understand everything that's in the passage. You might not understand a particular word. So in that same book, that same author, see if he uses the word other places. It may help you. And if you're still not quite sure you understand, expand your search, Right? to other authors in the New Testament or Old Testament. Mark is one of the four Gospels, but I think it's the one that it's all about action. There's very little philosophy in Mark, man. It's just boom, 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 boom. And right off in Mark chapter one, he has Jesus, and who says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." So it's pretty clear about repenting and believing the gospel, but what's he mean the kingdom of God is at hand? I might not understand that just by this one verse. What's that? The kingdom of God. So I find out, and I don't have time to do a whole study here, but I find out that Mark actually uses the word kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. And then if I'm still not sure what it means, I find out in the New Testament, the word kingdom occurs 162 times. So you can get a much better grasp if you're looking at the language and comparing it with other language that's in the same book or related books, okay? So look at the language carefully. Principle number eight. The Word of God is an unfolding revelation. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's an unfolding revelation. What I mean by that is all the answers don't come right out front. In the Old Testament, right? It's slowly revealed through time. And so you won't get always the same picture and the same understanding. You have to follow this progressive story to understand it fully. So Abraham, when he was called by God and God said to him, by your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Blessed. He had no idea what that meant. What he did was he believed it was true and followed God wholeheartedly. But he had no idea who Jesus was. He didn't know that it was going to involve a cross. He didn't know about the resurrection, right? It's a progressive story that's unveiled along the way. Exodus 21. It's part of the Old Testament law. It's a chapter about violence and the punishment for those who commit violence and other to to other people. In a variety of dis- different situations listed in Exodus 21, but in verses 23 to 25, it says this. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for wound, burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, whatever the guy gave out, his punishment is he gets the same thing, Okay. That was in Exodus 21. But when you get to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, he says this You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And he's referring to Exodus 21. It's not only said, it was written in the law. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Contradiction? No, it's a progression. The story progressed. You know it's not a contradiction, because he even refers back to what was said, and he's saying, but now have a full understanding. That was describing what the law had. This is God's law of justice, right? But nobody can really keep it that well, and I'm telling you what a real fully devoted follower of Jesus would do. You're not gonna strike back. You're gonna live a entirely different lifestyle, even though that justice God will take care of in the end You are going to live under a whole new rule. It was a progressive story, okay? So principle number eight, remember, it's this unfolding revelation. It starts from the Old Testament, goes all the way through the New Testament. And finally, principle number nine, no text of Scripture will contradict another text of Scripture, okay? That's not a presumption that's based on everything we said beforehand especially what Pastor Davi talked about last week. This is a reliable word of God. And if so, and it seems more than reasonable that it is so, after what we've been told last week, then no scripture should contradict any other scripture. So it becomes, if you find something that looks like a contradiction, it becomes your job as the interpreter to figure out what the real meaning is. It's on us, not on God. Let me show you a couple examples, okay? Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four talks about Abraham, and it says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what is it trying to say? Abraham was counted righteous because of faith. It was not because of what he did. It's because he believed God when God said, this is what will happen, and this is what you'll have to do, okay? So keep that in mind. Now let's go to James, chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? It's a um, facetious question in a sense that he's not really asking the question. He's telling you, yes. You know, this incredible act of obedience is what justified him, right? I mean, that's what it seems like. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac up on the altar? Well, seemingly a contradiction. So what do you do? Well, start looking up faith by works and faith by, uh, sorry, salvation by works and salvation by faith. Just look up all the passages in Scripture that you can, and you find out there is a ton that sounds like Roman and one that sounds like James. James, right? So by the sheer volume of verses, you say, well, I think we're saved by faith. But there's a second step to that because the, the answer isn't we're saved by faith, so James is wrong. It's part of Scripture too. We're saved by faith, so what could James mean? Well, if I were to go back to the passage, and I'm actually going to do that now, I'm going to jump to James chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 21 again, but this time I'm going to read verses 21, 22, and 23. 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He even quotes the same verse. He quotes the same verse that Paul did in Romans, right? So what was he actually trying to say? Well, what he's trying to say is that lots of people can say they have faith, but God knows real faith, and the way to see real faith is to see someone who acts on it, and Abraham, even though he was justified when he believed clearly, he just believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, clear as bell in Romans, that when when God put him to the test and said, sacrifice your son Isaac up on Mount Moriah, he did it. He went to do it. Now, God saved him from it, of course, but he actually believed God so much that he did that work that I can't even imagine myself doing, right? And that proved that his faith was real. So there's a way to do this, and we have to realize, it starts with realizing that no scripture will contradict another scripture. Here's here's another one. This one is so crazy, I gotta show it to you. I'll just let you read it on your own. This is Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. So, does Scripture tell me I should answer a fool according to his folly? How many think yes? Am I supposed to not answer a fool according to his folly? How many say yes? (laughs) Yes. So I had one vocal yes for the second one and one hand for the first one because you're going, well, wait a minute. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with a fool according to his folly, right? Clearly a contradiction. Well, hold on. If we really believe with substantial reason that this is the word of God, what am I going to do with this? Well, here's how I handle it. First of all, I would be much more Worried if these two verses were far apart in different books of the Bible written in different generations. If he, the the writer of Proverbs 26, if he wrote verse four, but I found verse five in like the book of James or book of Romans that we're just looking at, I'd be really worried that these guys didn't know each other but wrote the opposite thing. But wait a minute. Let me just use logic. This is the same author, right? Right? And he's writing this at the same time, right? Like he didn't write verse four and go away for, you know, six years and come back and write write verse five, right? He just wrote this. You tell me he didn't realize that he was writing the opposite things? I mean, if I write to you a letter and I say, hi, I hope your family is well. I hope your family is not well. And by the way, don't you think I know that I just wrote that? Surely he knows that he wrote... Even logic tells me he's not contradicting himself. And so the way I handle it is, hey, when it comes to a fool, it gets tricky. (laughs) It gets tricky. And sometimes you got to look the guy in the eye and say, that's ridiculous, right? And sometimes it's better just to walk away. I mean, how many of you do that with politics, right? Sometimes it's like, wait a minute. And sometimes it's like, nope, I'm going to go the other way, right? So anyway, but there's a couple good illustrations to show. No, no scripture will contradict another part of scripture. There are ways to work through this. There aren't ridiculous ways where we just say, nuh-uh, uh right? We actually think through this. All right, let me bring this to a conclusion here. So these are principles. And I will, in my Thursday email, if you get that, I'll reiterate these six principles. If you didn't get them all, and by the way, uh, if you join the church, you will automatically get my Thursday email. But if you don't get a Thursday email, I send one out every Thursday, and you would like to, either write on the connection card or go to the hub and say, you know, I would like to receive Boyd's Thursday email, okay, so we can get you one. Uh, give us your contact information too, by the way, when you do that. But anyway, I'll remind us of these nine principles this Thursday. Remember them when you read the Bible, Because there's one step I haven't talked about that's very, very important, and that is application. In order to apply it, you have to interpret it correctly, but after you interpret it correctly, don't stop. There's always an application, so make sure you ask this question of yourself every time you read Scripture. How should I change based on what I just interpreted? I just read a portion of God's Word. It's infallible. It's for my life. It means my life, right? So, am I supposed to change according to this? Well, maybe I'm doing all right according to this verse. Maybe I should step it up. Maybe I should repent. How should I change based on what I just read and interpreted? Next week, we'll take these principles. We'll apply them to this incredibly complex subject of sex, sexuality, and gender identity as best as we can. And we'll talk about what the Bible says and how we interpret it correctly, okay? And as I pray to close us this, this morning at this session, um, I've asked them to just pop not all nine principles on. Maybe hard to see when they're all on the screen together, but in case you missed one and you would like to copy it down or take a picture of it, that's okay as well. It's a big job. It's an important job, and I want to encourage you that interpreting Scripture should be your daily job, not just on Sundays. Listen to us interpret it but you learning how to do it and reading it on your own every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Incredible word that you have given to us. And it has so much value for us. And we don't want to take it lightly. Lord, this is important. This is our life. This is our future. This answers so many questions for us. Thank you for the word of God and thank you you give us the Holy Spirit so every time we sit down we don't have to just try to figure it out on our own. We have these principles but we also have the spirit to show us and guide us in all of this as well. We want to be a people who rightly divide the word of truth. We want to be a people who understand what you say to us so that we can go and do likewise and apply this the way you want us to. So not only can we understand what you want, but we become the light to the world that's effective and can have an influence in other people's lives, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.